This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. Coming up on today's show... We drove our Chevy to the levelling up, but the levelling up was dry. Will the government ever deliver on its promise to make real investments in the north of England? We have West Yorkshire Mayor Tracy Brabin with us to explain what it's like trying to get a straight answer out of soft southerners. Plus, the government's online harms bill threatens to fine social media giants up to 10% of their global turnover if they don't curb genuinely threatening or knowingly false messages. Will this really make social media a less threatening place or just a land of wind and ghosts? And everybody hated the career politicians, so we replaced them with journalist politicians. And look how that worked out. What are the careers that best prepare you for a life in politics? All that and more in this week's bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Remember, you can help us keep delivering podcasts to your doorstep every morning, six days a week, like a digital milkman, by supporting us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Now let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to freelance journalist and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hi, Andrew. So, Justin, we're all still terrified of what may or may not happen in Ukraine. Washington is claiming that Russia has compiled a kill list of people in Ukraine uh, to be killed or sent to detention camps after an invasion. How well is the narrative that it's all NATO's fault holding up, do you think? Uh, about as well as it always did. Um, I've actually thought that one of the very few, very few silver linings to this entire sorry mess has been the way the whole crisis has served as an absolutely clarifying moment yeah. around people like Stop the War. Um, the way that it's spelled out in the most crystal clear terms that their central organising principle is simply, we will reflexively blame everything on the West has been quite useful the way that's spelled it out. Um, and when you see who still go along with that and who's still carrying water for them, it tells you exactly who they are. Um, and I've got to say, more than anything political, I just find something faintly indecent about the speed and glee with which they will turn a situation where real innocent civilians are having this geopolitical disaster just forced upon them and try and turn that into an opportunity to reinforce their weird polit- political hobby horse. Uh, it's very revealing. Are you getting a feeling of how it was, you know, might have been to live through something like the Cuban Missile Crisis then? I mean, no, thankfully. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, the terror surrounding that doesn't feel like it's being matched here. But that could also be because there's a really strange sort of postmodern feeling to this conflict so far. It's the first war I can think of where it may already have started, but not in a form that anyone recognises from previous conflicts and where both main parties seem to be expressly saying that nothing is happening. Um, And as seems to be the case about every two weeks at the moment, I find myself thinking, what would J.G. Ballard have made of it all? He probably wrote it. (laughs) Also with us, we have Westminster lobby journalist and author of Honourable Misfits, a brief history of Britain's weirdest, unluckiest and most outrageous MPs. It's Marie Lacan. Hello, Marie. Hello. 
Now, I've got bad news for you. I'm afraid you're on the royal family desk this week. The Queen's got COVID. The mood in Windsor Castle is reportedly one of caution and no major cause for alarm, and the Queen will continue doing light duties. What sort of light duties should a 95-year-old woman be doing? Um, so my understanding is that she's basically reading and signing state papers. So she's got a red box like all the ministers, which I did not know about until recently. However, I think what I much prefer is someone very funny on Twitter, who sadly was not me, said, she's only going to be like doing light duties. There must be so many lamps in Buckingham Palace. Surely she's too old <laughs> to be going around all day, um, which I just really enjoyed. And I still have in my head now the image of the Queen sort of sighing, starting in the morning, turning on all the lamps. Yes. And then at sort of, you know, 4 p.m. having to start again. Um, but yes, no, so probably some papers. And no, of course, I mean, she should just, sure, surely, if you're the queen, and I'm no royalist, but surely if you're the queen and you're that age, you deserve a de- like a week in bed. Like, that's fine. I, I feel like the country can continue with her just like watching Netflix. Well, she can work from home in a castle. <laughs> I mean, it's not like being stuck in the laundry room with the, the cat climbing on you and the kids complaining. She literally lives in castles. Mm. Also on the royal front, uh, with a week's hindsight, How do you think the settling of the Prince Andrew case with £12 million of money from somewhere is going down in the country? I mean, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure there's been that much of an impact. I think it's a mix of, you know, this specific story has kind of been going on in the background for years now. And obviously, you know, there were much bigger news recently, but it's still something that's been kind of happening. Plus also the fact that now the Queen has COVID and also in general, the fact that, you know, there's just so much going on at the moment on every single possible front. I, I, I don't know, I, I do kind of think, and this may be me being very cynical, but I'm not really sure that's currently going to be remembered as sort of, you know, massive, massive news, unless something more happens in coming weeks or coming months, we have no idea. But I think for now, it's already nearly been forgotten. Our special guest today is Tracy Brabin, Mayor of West Yorkshire, first to hold the position since it was established in 2021 and the first female Metro Mayor anywhere. She's also the former MP for Batley and Spen and prior to entering politics, an actor and writer for numerous soap operas and other things, including Coronation Street, EastEnders, Casualty and Emma Dale. Welcome to the bunker, Madame Mayor. Well, thank you for the invitation. You've got the full set of all the soaps there. So uh, <laughs> um, levelling up is the big topic this week. We're going to be talking about that in detail later. But you came, you, you came into politics after the murder of your friend Joe Cox in your hometown of Batley and Spen. Just tell us what took you from acting and drama into politics. What, what were you bringing into politics? Well, I'd always been politically active as a Labour member. Um, but as an actor, when you're on the telly, you can also help um, Labour candidates. So I'd go around the country supporting councillors, uh, and candidates. And that's how I got to know Joe. And obviously, it's my hometown. She was standing in my hometown. It was fantastic. We went out campaigning uh, a few times, then after she was elected. And then after she was murdered, um, I just said to her friend at the funeral, what can I do? Um, and she said, do you want to be an MP? And it suddenly fell into place that actually, after you know spending my life living my Labour values, this was a, a, a moment uh, that was unique and that I just felt I had to throw my hat in the ring. I, I feel it, it was it was a good decision in obviously horrible circumstances. I mean, I can't imagine how hard it must have been to sort of, to be thinking about those things, about uh, uh, electoral stuff, about policy and so forth, when, I mean, the circumstances of Joe's death were so horrific and shocked the entire country. To be sort of thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we move forward with this must have been uh, very difficult. 
oh, just awful. And everywhere I went, you know, people would see me and burst into tears because I'm the living embodiment of what they've lost. And um, she was an extraordinary member of parliament, an extraordinary human being as well, the work that she'd done. So, you know, everywhere I went, big shoes to fill, that sort of conversation. But I really believe that what was needed wasn't necessarily somebody who was a politician who did PP Oxbridge, was somebody that understood the community and had empathy and could have a strategy about how we rebuild and how we come together. Because let's not forget, she was murdered by a a white supremacist. And those far-right thoughts and those individuals that believe that vile nature were still around. And in the by-election, the major parties stood to one side, but the BNP decided that they wanted to stand. So that's why we had to have the by-election rather than just... Um, you know, repl- you know, stepping in and and being the the Labour MP, so it was horrendous having to have a by election against the far right. Yeah, uh, the the mayor job is it's a massive job for a, for a massive region. What does Westminster get wrong about the West Yorkshire region? Firstly. Well, partly it doesn't listen necessarily, and also is in a it has a habit of telling us what uh, we need. Um, which isn't great because they don't know us. So they may make a decision on buses, for example. And this is a critical moment for us here in in West Yorkshire and actually across the country that they are deciding to withdraw COVID support funding from our bus network, which means that we are going to lose um, routes in areas where I absolutely need those routes and need to level up. And I've been trying to say, and other mayors across the country have been trying to say to government, you can't just have this cliff edge of funding. And it, it seems like um, the government have turned a, um, a deaf ear to that. Uh, so they do need to listen to people on the ground. We know our community. We live here. This is our friends and our families, our colleagues, our businesses. And also stop putting us into beauty competitions where we're bidding against each other. Trust us to be able to manage budgets and know where the funding should go, where we can be agile. We know what's needed, uh, you know, in, in uh, swiftly and we can act decisively. But government need to believe in us. Uh, do, do you ever get like wound up with the constant reference to the Red Wall as if it's kind of a generic sort of completely homogeneous idea that everywhere along the M62 corridor is exactly the same with the same ideas and the same people? You know, the North just being all the same. Well, I, do, I must say I do get slightly annoyed when people just say the North and wave their hand a bit, you know, up there somewhere. We are very different. Our communities are very different and we're proud to be Yorkshire, but we're also proud to be from Ilkley or we're proud to be from Batley, as I am. What is quite galling is sometimes people talking about how Labour wins back in the Red Wall. Well, uh, you know, how do we get power back in the Red Wall? Well, we're already in power um, because we have Labour mayors across the country. And I think it's it's good for, um, for government to see Labour delivering on the ground and also for the Labour Party to see how we're innovative, how we're listening, um, what we're doing for our communities when we have power and money. The FT just ran a story that Labour and the Lib Dems have got a plan on for an informal non-aggression pact, which may or may not happen for, for, for the next election. What do, you, what do you think about this? Because, you know, it's something that a lot of our listeners are desperate to see the idea that you can have this progressive alliance. I'm I'm not across this, but I would assume that our resources within the Labour Party are really limited. And what we'll be focusing on is those seats we can win. 
Mm. Um, so potentially the, the Lib Dems will be doing the same. But I can't imagine there's going to be a formal pact. We saw where that led us um, last time. So I can only imagine we're focusing on, you know, where we know we can win. Labour suffered big losses in West Yorkshire in the 2019 election and uh, Labour suffered big losses across the country. Do you get the sense that people are giving the party another chance now? I absolutely. I think Keir's leadership has been exceptional. Certainly, uh, people I talk to who potentially either didn't vote or voted Conservative are, are giving the Labour Party another go. One, because they see what Labour does in power for their families through Labour mayors, but also the, the positioning that we've taken, the opposition we've shown against the government and the honesty with which we lead uh, in comparison to Partygate um, and, and cronyism and waste particularly around money um, you know you, you could there's, a, there's real clear water between the parties you're singing our song <laughs> Two years on from the government's promise to level up the country, all of it, all at the same time, apparently, there's still plenty of rhetoric and not many proposals. Michael Gove released the Level and Got White Paper two weeks ago. Labour said the plans contain no new money and little fresh thinking. The UK is one of the world's most geographically unequal major economies. So is the government really trying to close the gap between North and South or is it all just theatre? Tracy, uh, this, this catchphrase has been used incessantly by this government. It was central to the 2019 election manifesto. Is it real? Is it just a slogan? Should we give credit for where they are actually doing decent things? Well, look, Michael Gove is, is somebody that's a bit of a disruptor. He wants to deliver. Uh, I was a bit disappointed with the white paper, I have to be honest, because there was no new money apart from 22 million, which was for Brown, Brownfield Land Fund. And that came with the same strings attached. So there was on the one hand saying, we're going to extend devolution, we're going to extend the powers of the mayors. And yet in the levelling up white paper itself, there was new money, but it was the same old story and the same restrictions. So it's going to be really um, important to see whether the whole cabinet are going to buy into this. Um, And at the moment, what what we're not seeing is Treasury coming on board with any ambitious um, approach to levelling up. Because this isn't just about North and South, it's about our community in West Yorkshire. So a child born in Ilkley uh, today could potentially live 10 years longer than a child maybe born in in Dewsbury and a healthier life at that. So it's also about health inequalities. It's about opportunities, about skills, investment in our businesses. It's fundamentally also about transport. If people can't get about and they can't get to opportunity, then how on earth are you going to level up? And I've been making the case along with other mayors across the country, get that transport right. That's why we were so disappointed with the integrated rail plan, that that there wasn't that new line between Manchester and Leeds with a through line through Bradford, the youngest, least connected city, um, and there was no vision there from government. That Bradford is the poster child for levelling up, and it was completely disregarded. So I'm not sure how how full fat the levelling up approach is going to be. Um, you mentioned the the beauty contest uh, aspect of of the funding, and you know a lot of listeners might not know that the regions have to bid for this 4.8 billion levelling up fund. And in the northeast, the Northern Echo found that councils in the northeast had spent three hundred thousand pounds on consultants trying to get their bids through with no guarantee of success. So, you know, 
that it just seems a complete you know waste of resources. What's what's your take on the bidding process? Do you, do, do you personally does your office have to bid in the same way? Well, the bidding process is not going to work because, like you say, you spend so much capacity, time, and money on getting a bid prepared, and then you may be unsuccessful or not get a third of what you've bid for. We already are incredibly busy, you know, delivering our pipeline of commitments. Give us the the respect to deliver. Give us the pot of money and we will be able to then prioritise where it needs to go to level up for government. We can work with government. We can help government deliver on their targets, whether that's levelling up, whether that's the climate emergency target of zero carbon emissions by 2050. We are chomping at the bit. We want to get going, but we need the the authority for you know and the money from government to, to be able to implement our ambitious plans. Now, I've been able to say of the gain share money, which is money that is not controlled by government, this is money you get from a mayoral combined authority, I've been able to say £40 million worth of that will be focused on tackling the climate crisis. And haven't we seen how we need to do that with recent flooding? I can show that we make sensible choices, but these beauty contests just are draining resources and don't always have the outcomes that we need for each region and are sometimes open to political shenanigans. Do you think this, the, the the desire to level up is a sincere one or is it just a slogan that got out of hand? Well, um, I'm, I'm not sure. All I can say is this is the first time we've had anything written down about what levelling up is. I mean, it's two years since the, the phrase was coined, but we've had it, haven't we, with Northern Powerhouse, um, all, you know, all these phrases that come from government to show that they are listening to uh, areas outside of Westminster and Whitehall. The proof of the pudding is in the eating and we must be given those powers to help help deliver and make this not just um, not just a phrase. I'm doing my bit. Government have to help us by doing their bit. Just in quirk, um, Tracy just mentioned uh, George Osborne's Northern Powerhouse, which is in the uh, in the misty uh, in the misty past. As our resident soft southerner, uh, do you think this uh, there is any real political capital in this for the Conservatives, or you know is is you know, actually doing it, or is, is lip service enough to just like pump the slogan around and hope that the effect has been created? It's really difficult for them. I mean, you saw some acknowledgement within that recent paper that they do grasp how much damage has been done to certain areas of the country over the past four decades. You know, the paper talked of, instead of, you know, wrenching structural changes that cause large and lasting economic damage to significant parts of the country. And that's great. But the implication is that the Conservative Party has learned from that. And it has in the sense that it's not going to collapse industry again across, you know, large swathes of the country. But that admission only carries any weight if they can come up with a different framework for how we think about economic growth in an area. And while the model is still rooted in basically attract private investment, cluster a few big companies together, pump up local house prices, you're going to run into the same problems and there'll be the same failure to address the underlying problems again. It's incredible to, to think that certain parts of you know East former East Germany, which until 1989 were like literally... <laughs> Behind the Iron Curtain, now of a higher GDP than parts of Northern England. I mean, should should we be uh, you know learning the lessons of the reunification of Germany here? Yeah, I mean the results of that program are. I mean they're really quite something. They said you know post reunification, East Germany had about sixty percent of West Germany's productivity. That's now up to about eighty five percent. But one of the main issues there is one of timescales. You know, part of the government's justification that you were discussing there for cancelling that eastern leg of HS two. Yeah was that this, you know, the benefits wouldn't have been seen until 2040. 
And that's because economic rebalancing is a generational project. You know, it doesn't just get done within the term of the next the next parliament. And that's much harder in a politically adversarial system like we have, yeah. because plans might get junked every five years and no one wants to invest in something which they think the other side might then take the credit for. Yeah, you, you don't want this all to land when Tracy's prime minister, <laughs> do you? And she takes all the credit. <laughs> big, lap of, big lap of honour around the railway goods yard as it cuts the ribbon on it. Um, and that's that's much, much harder, but... You know, also the other thing you had in East Germany, which really made a difference, you had very genuine devolution, and not just devolution, but also the, the aspect of partnership. Mm. Key cities like Leipzig and Dresden were really brought into the fold of the capital in the way that just hasn't been matched here. And again, I think, as with before, the key thing is a shift in mindset. And away from this idea that you discussed the North as this sort of homogenous mass where, and, you know, and it's somewhere that can have solutions imposed from the outside. Marie, the levelling up plan was released at the beginning of February, coincidentally, right when the anger about parties in Downing Street was at its murderous peak. Um, is, is, this a, is this a strange coincidence, do you think? Has the white paper been rushed out? Um, I do generally think it is, yes, because I think, I mean, the problem is that, like, you know, there's often a narrative of either, you know, when big stuff is happening, the government will try and get, you know, sort of like bad things kind of published while no one is paying attention, or they're releasing, you know, some nice, great big thing to move away the attention from the bad things they've been doing. But I think in the case of this government, you know, anything that they would have released at any point in the past four months would have coincided with bad headlines about bad behaviour. So so I'm not I'm not really sure, you know, when was the last time really that the government was doing so okay that they could have released something on a normal week. Um but then yeah, more internally as well, I feel like, you know, what what I heard, and I think that's been um put in the paper since um, is that, if anything, you know, it has been massively delayed because, and I think that was also a direct quote, which I both heard, but made it to the eye, I think, it was just quite shit. So I think there were quite a few iterations <laughs> of it. And each time it was like, actually just back to the drawing board because this is just not very good. So no, I, I do think in this case, um, oddly, this was a genuine coincidence. What What are you hearing about how it's gone down with the Conservatives, the new intake of Conservatives, many of whom come from places who absolutely need this levelling up investment? As you haunt the corridors of Westminster, Marie, what what, what are they uh, what are they saying and thinking? Uh, well, I think the most damning thing I can say, which happens to be the truth as well, is that I've not really heard much about it at all. Um, I feel like it's actually wow. not been massively part of the discourse because I think, you know, there's been so much um, navel gazing in Westminster over the past few months, especially on the Conservative side. So they're not massively talking about it. But then, and I think, you know, that's maybe a slightly broader point and off topic. And I think something I've mentioned before, because it kind of has become my hobby horse. I'm not convinced a lot of the Red Wall Conservative MPs know really what their constituencies need. Because if you look at the fact that quite a lot of them want Liz Trust to become the next prime minister. You know, and that is someone who is very to the right economically, very Thatcherite, very, so, you know, wants a tiny, teeny state. That is, you know, and that strikes me as the exact opposite of really what, you know, what you should be arguing for as someone who's just won a seat off Labour in the north of England. So I'm not really convinced, you know, even they are weirdly a good barometer in terms of whether that'd be good, good for their constituents or not. Tracy, the government's strategy is, is to create loads more regional mayors like yourself in, in West Yorkshire. We've got Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester, also Ben Hatchin in, T, in Tees Valley. But when the, when the mayors materialise, the government then disagrees with them or marginalises with them. Do you think we're destined for an adversarial mayors versus Westminster relationship in future? No, I, I don't think so. And I think, you know, being able to say um, I represent everybody in West Yorkshire, whether you voted Conservative, Lib Dem, or you didn't vote at all, what I want 
is a, a better life for the people of West Yorkshire. I want better transport skills. I, I want to tackle climate emergency and I want culture for all. I, I think we will always be the voice uh, of our region. So if we feel we're being shortchanged or government, uh, you know, are disregarding our priorities, then of course we're going to stand up for the people we represent. But conversely, I've been speaking and working uh, closely with um, Conservative MPs who were outraged at the IRP and the fact that they felt their communities were left behind. So I'm, I'm very happy to work with anyone. So I think there is something quite refreshing about the mayoral role, that it's not just about taking a party political position, it's just trying to see what's the best way to get a relationship with those people that can help us deliver on our ambitions. And I have my own vision, my 10 manifesto pledges, which do chime weirdly with um, the 12 missions of Michael Gove. So I think he he looked at my manifesto before he wrote the levelling up my paper. <laughs> um, and um, I'm, you know, I'm happy to work with him to deliver. So basically, let's all go and live in Leeds. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> It could become an offence to send genuinely threatening or knowingly false messages online or on social media under the government's new online safety bill. Social networks could be fined 10% of their global turnover if they fail to remove harmful content, and tech giants would have, to, would have to be proactive about removing this stuff. The bill also covers revenge porn, human trafficking, extremist content, and promoting suicide online. Um, Justin, you know, racist abuse of footballers, revenge porn, cyber flashing, COVID disinformation. These are all kind of leading to calls for stricter online rules. What exactly does this bill do and should it be doing it? Um, it's quite a mix of things. It's trying to clarify what tech firms will be expected to remove as a priority. Um, and that list includes online drugs and weapons dealing, people smuggling revenge porn, fraud, promoting suicide, uh, things about inciting or controlling prostitution. Now, a lot of this stuff already contravenes the terms of service uh, on these sites. But what's different here is that previously the firms would have been forced to take such content down after it had been reported to them by users. Um, what this does is it shifts them to being proactive and preventing people being exposed to it in the first place. Now, it seems like this can be done. I think there's often a tendency to think social media is just this vast, wild west environment and, you know, you can't police the frontier. But if you think, for example, I'll say when the ISIS campaign was really at its height in Syria, you would frequently see being reposted to things like ISIS propaganda videos or, you know, really kind of gory material. Now, you just don't see that on mm. the site anymore. So they can police certain things. What they've said exactly in the legislation is, the proactive element of tackling the priority offences, um, firms need to make sure that features, functionality and algorithms of their service are designed to prevent their users encountering them and minimising the length of time the content's available. So they're saying that could be either automated or human content moderation, things like banning illegal search terms so you can't even look for stuff within the site, um, spotting suspicious users and having effective systems to not just ban them from the site but also prevent them reopening accounts from the same IP addresses. So when the government talks about legal but harmful content, what, what do they mean? Because, I mean, surely if something is legal, we have made a decision as a, as a society that, uh, you know, well, it might not be to your taste, but uh, people should have access to it should they wish. This is interesting. I mean, it covers, I suppose, what you could generously call like quite a grey area. Um, 
they're talking about things like sort of harmful and abusive emails, social media posts, WhatsApp messages. But then they get into the realm of things like pile-on harassment, you know, mm. where people might not be doing anything themselves, but they're instigating a large other group of other people to abuse someone on their behalf. Um, one example I gave that I thought was quite clarifying was the way that online communications can be used as part of, say, domestic violence. So the example was if someone's fled an abusive relationship to a safe house or a safe location and somebody then sends them a photo of their new address or they post, you know, a photo of their new front door on the internet. Now, there's nothing abusive about that per se, but that will now be covered because what we're looking at is context rather than mm. just content. And I think as to the best of my understanding, the law as it stands at the moment is very much focused on content. And this is actually saying that it's more about the context that these things are used and shared within. It's fascinating the idea of doing something about pylons because, you know, you spend more than five minutes online and you will spot the pylon artists when you, yeah. you know how to, oh, it's nothing to do with me, Gov. With these sort of conflict entrepreneurs, you know, it's yeah. people and particularly the people who are on the Substack model. There's a guy who wrote a very good piece last year about coming, coming off Substack where he said essentially the way you can make money on Substack is essentially people are paying you to go and argue with someone else on their behalf. Mm. And that, again, that sort of it sort of incentivizes conflict in that sense. Um, but I think from a first reading of it, I think some of the the way that actually thought about this material was quite interesting in that it didn't seem to just come down to saying, you know, this stuff's good, this stuff's bad. Mm. It's sort of saying that actually the way people are using the internet is more nuanced and the way they're using it to abuse other people is more nuanced. Priti Patel's been looking to widen the scope with particular focus on fraud, terrorism and other clearly illegal activities on uh, digital platforms. Setting aside the fact that didn't quasi quoting tell us fraud wasn't a crime or something last week, um, this is the uh, this is the mission creep that sets uh, wet liberals like us into fits of terror, isn't it? It, it is, and it's you know the old line about hard cases make bad laws, as mm. they sort of frequently say. And and again, into your point about quasi quoting there. This is the problem for the government at the moment. While the issues aren't specifically linked. We keep coming back to the fact that as long as Johnson is in power, the government loses a lot of its moral authority when it comes to discussing anything around the law mm. or rules generally or issues about dodgy funding or <laughs> foreign money. or And that's going to keep being just as much of an issue for them as it was in, say, the dog days of John Major's government when he was trying to get people to talk about, you know, going back to basics and the need for morals in public life. And you're saying, you've got Jonathan Aitken working. <laughs> <laughs> you can you know, pick a lane. You can have one, you can have the other. And I think whatever might be, you know, good, bad, or somewhere in between about this bill, the government is going to keep running into this issue every time they try and take a stand on law and order. Marie, there are parts of this bill that uh, both David Cameron and Theresa May tried to pass when they were in number 10 and they didn't get anywhere. Why is online reform so difficult to bring in? Is it because, I don't know, the the, the culture of the internet and the capabilities of, of, of digital platforms developed so fast that, like, effectively they're still trying to work out what they want to do with Habbo Hotel and um, Friendster? <laughs> So, so, so I think I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of different answers to that question. So one is that um, I think just regulating the internet in general is very difficult, and I think there's you know kind of laws of intended uh, unintended consequences. I think you know is a, is a big part of policy making, and especially so with the internet. So even looking at, for example, um, you know putting was it like age regulations on certain uh, bits of content in websites. Proving your identity online is not something that's actually that easy to do. And like, who who do you place that burden on? Can you trust them with it? Will you be made responsible if there are massive data leaks, um, as happens quite often, etc.? So I think 
basically the, the first thing is that it is quite hard to make hard rules about the internet. I think the second thing is also that not everyone really agrees where to put the line because again, a lot of what happens that's bad on the internet is not especially easy, I think, to regulate against. So even when you look at, I think, quite a lot of politicians, you know, their hobby horse now is saying, oh, actually, you know, online anonymity is very bad. And that's why the internet is so bad is because people are hiding behind fake names, etc. When, you know, Facebook is a thing and Facebook is horrible now and people are mm. incredibly racist and sexist and homophobic on a website where more often than not, they have their full name and their picture and probably, you know, quite a lot of their relatives and their friends. So I think that there's a bit of an aspect here of perhaps politicians not quite understanding, I think, the internet as well as they should. And I think that's why, as you said, you know, like quite a lot of what's in the, uh, in the online harms bill had been mentioned by Theresa May, by David Cameron, because each time it's that, oh, actually, turns out this is harder than we thought, which actually, I would argue, is not entirely unlike levelling up of like previous governments had realised that the North was poorer than the South. Like, you know, this is not this government who woke up and thought, oh, hang on, it's just that some issues are very hard to fix. But there's, there's two ironies with the fact that it's Boris Johnson's government that's doing this. One is that, you know, Johnson's always talked about, you know, being a libertarian and, in fact, a libertine, you know, freedom-loving prime minister and so on. You know, the idea that sort of cleaning up the internet on his watch is a bit odd. And also, I mean, let, let's be honest. You know, if we could see Boris Johnson's search history, I'm sure we'd all be very, very surprised. It probably didn't, probably quite different from Theresa May's search history, I should imagine. I said with very little basis, in fact. I mean, does it surprise you that it's his government, this government of, of you know, the supposed libertine that's introducing this bill? I mean, yes and no, because I think, you know, it is also a government that's introducing massive, massive curbs on the right to protest in this country, uh, mm. which is something I think that's not been made um, enough of. So, So he's not... You know, like, sure, okay, you know, Boris Johnson is a libertarian. He is also a man who said he would never run for prime minister. He is also a man who promised he would no longer be the editor of The Spectator if he ran to become an MP. Um, he, he's a man who will say anything to anyone. And I think, you know, that there's always been such a chasm between what Boris says he is and what he actually is that, again, I, th I think it's just slightly weird that people keep being surprised, basically, by Boris Johnson being duplicitous in any way, because it's like... Have you seen the guy? You know, have you yeah. been around British politics for the past decade, two decades? So, so yes, of course, it is hypocritical. But is it surprising? I don't think so. It's like, yeah, I'm a libertarian for me, not you, <laughs> for me. Yeah, that means I get to do what I want. That's it. End of. Was it such a big deal for uh, MPs in Westminster? Are they spending all of their time sort of, you know, checking their their uh, their Twitter replies on their knee on a phone in the in the chamber? Um, but I, I think actually that that is part of the problem because, um, and this is kind of you know a wider issue. I think when you talk about politics, quite often a criticism that comes back again and again is saying actually MPs have no lived experience of a lot of the stuff they legislate on. And I think there's weirdly so that this issue is kind of unique in that it's exactly the other way round. In that I think MPs are completely in the thick of it and are all without exception people who are obviously at the receiving end of like various degrees, but still like an absolute ton of abuse normally on every single form of social media. So I think that there's yeah again at the inverse problem where they get the worst of the internet every day in their inbox, um, and I think that makes their policymaking biased, I suppose. Tracy, at one point you were Shadow Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. You know, MPs receive vast amounts of abuse and, uh, you know, we saw the a terrible thing with Keir Starmer and the Jimmy Savile Slayer last week. Can the government really introduce the kind of legislation that's in the online harms bill 
you know, in the light of, you know, their behavior in the commons and, the, you know, the idea that, you know, you can just take a, a slur from the fringes of the Internet and basically get it into Hansard. Well, look, um, there's a couple of points there. One is when I was a member of parliament, the language around Brexit, um, you know, uh, traitor, the capitulation act, that sort of language, which I challenged Boris Johnson on, was repeated to me verbatim on the doorstep. And for the first time ever, I had to have police at my surgeries because of the level of abuse I was getting online. The doorstep was very challenging because people were reiterating what they'd heard in parliament. And unfortunately, there is that link. And when you hear the Prime Minister uh, connect the, the leader of the opposition with Jimmy Savile, that language is going to be repeated. And he's repeating tropes that are from the furthest, you know, the far right conspiracy websites. And it is an outrage that he got away with that without a full um, and detailed apology. I think there are two things about the online harms white paper. When I was the Shadow Secretary of State for DCMS, I was saying, where is it? And still, we're at this uh, conversation point, um, bringing that bill through Parliament. It It is tortuous how long this has taken. Being online is amazing and young people get a lot out of it, but it's also can be a very dark place where we know and there are parents out there who've campaigned for harsher restrictions because they've lost their young people to whether that's um, suicide, self-harm, whatever, um, uh, eating disorders, etc., that aren't being controlled. The deepest, darkest bit of the web um, and um, I think our, our, those companies need to take responsibility but it needs to go to the very top and until you do they won't take the, the action that needs to be taken Finally, we have a government filled with journalists and PR professionals, very good at winning campaigns, not so good at governing. We also have the Mayor, formerly known as Tricia Armstrong from Corrie on the podcast. What professions give you the best grounding for politics? Spoiler, it's not writing columns for the Telegraph. Tracy, I mean, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, your acting and writing background. Do you think it helps you as a politician, you know, you know, politics being narrative and so on? Well, do you know what I think did help is being a freelancer for three decades. And and it's almost like the original gig economy because you're rich, you're not, you're rich, you're not. Um, and <laughs> there are times when, I mean, I grew up as a, on free school meals. There were times when my own kids were on free school meals. I've been in supermarkets putting things back because I can't afford it, thinking about selling the car to pay my tax bill or to pay bills, worrying about having to sell the house. And I think when COVID hit, I was able to then really understand the impact that closing the whole of that sector down and so many others like hospitality, the impact that had on those people who go from wage to wage. With lived experience, I think it makes you a better politician. I think sometimes going through the traditional route, whether that's, you know, PPE, Oxbridge, and then becoming an advisor and then an MP, I wonder whether you really understand how people live. Being a, a mayor, I think it has really helped my lived experience. One example, I'm also the police and crime commissioner. I was at uh, university. I was sexually assaulted by a stranger in the street who, uh, who went to prison. I am now able to use that lived experience to know what needs to be done around violence against women and girls and to make that a priority for me going forward. So your lived experience is of value and almost at more value than any qualification you might get. Not many people would know that, you know, as, as well as acting, you wrote drama and you wrote partly for uh, Tracy Beaker and you also wrote some of Shameless, which is one of the few programmes that actually shows working people's 
lives. Is it a shame that kind of TV has to fill in the blanks that maybe politicians ought to be investigating for themselves? Well, thank goodness we have writers with their imaginations and their and their vision to tell us really compelling stories. And um, I don't know if anybody's been watching The Responder, but um, goodness me, oh, that yes. was incredible television, amazing performances, what great storytelling. Um, but sometimes um, you can't actually write a satirical drama about politics because actually it's even worse than you could write, certainly what we're seeing coming out of the Conservatives at the moment. But I, I would say um, writing stories that have value and social value is really important. You just spoke then about uh, working class voices on TV. We need to see more of those, don't we? My mum gave uh, the responder high marks for the accents. She said, I couldn't fault it. So, you know, <laughs> what more could you wish for? Marie, there was a uh, House of Commons report on the social background of MPs, uh, all the ones who've entered the House since 1979. And what it described as a huge rise in MPs with a background in political roles, like being a councillor, party official, or actually in, in the media itself. Um, this is the, the plague of the professional politician, the person who spends their entire life in party politics. Can we do anything about this? Is it, you know, obviously it's not very good for our politics. Is it the kind of thing we can do anything about? I think there are two different questions here. I mean, the first thing is actually, I mean, perhaps controversially, I would argue that it's not inherently a bad thing to have a lot of career politicians in politics because, I mean, A, I think there's a difference between, I think, if you're a councillor, that's completely different from if you are a government special advisor, for example, mm. because being a councillor is actually dealing very much with the general public, with people's very real local concerns. And I think that's actually very good training for becoming a member of parliament. Um, spaddy types or lobbying stuff, etc. I'm not as convinced. But still, I think, you know, it, it is entirely natural that people, you know, some people will have this incredibly passionate interest in politics. And, you know, and obviously cannot become an MP at 21 upon leaving university. And I think, you know, it's, again, not an inherently bad thing for those people to do that, you know, what they're passionate about for, let's say, 10 years, and then uh, run to be an MP, especially because I think politics is you know, it can be quite an opaque place and it can be quite hard to know how to be effective as an MP. So actually getting some people who can hit the ground running is no bad thing. But then changing it, I think that goes back and we could do an entire other podcast on that. But I think that that goes back to the selection process and how actually we, we sort of pick our MPs in the worst possible way. I'd actually recommend um, How We Get the Wrong Politicians by Isabel Hardman, which is a very good book on that. Um, but, you yeah, know, I think we would just need the main parties to completely change the way they pick their candidates, uh, especially in safe seats, because more often than not, it will be people who are quite close to CCHQ or to Southside for Labour. Um, so, yes, but, uh, you know, do, do I see this happening anytime soon? Not really. Uh, in a recent Prime Minister's Questions, Boris Johnson said that Keir Starmer was a lawyer, not a leader. As if this was like a bad thing. You know, the guy's a lawyer and knows the law. Uh, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair were both practising barristers before they entered politics. Um, do we actually need more lawyers and not fewer lawyers in politics? People who can actually deal with evidence logistically? Hmm, I'm not sure we need... I would say, you know, because there's already quite a few lawyers and barristers um, in the House hmm. of Commons. I'm not convinced we need more of them because it's also... You know, lawyers by definition just really love arguing for the sake of arguing and just appearing to be clever and love the sound of their own voice. Um, that is something they have in common with politicians, which is why there's probably quite a lot of overlap between the two. But yeah, I'm not convinced, you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced a House of Commons full of lawyers would be a better House of Commons, if I'm honest. No offence to lawyers. Justin, this government's filled with journalists and people from PR who can win elections very well and then can't govern. Um, 
who else should we have? In? Obviously, job one, ban all the journalists, get mm. rid of them all. People like us should not be allowed to be MPs. We would be terrible at it. We'd produce loads and loads of goes and Johnsons. What kind of people do we need? I mean, honestly, right now, after the past decade we've had, I would just want to see the most boring, faceless, technocratic centrists. Um, I'd happily vote for a government of completely emotionless push-button wonks. Um, I don't want characters, personalities, anyone with a Twitter account, or no. government by cold, emotionless robot, basically. You don't want to, they bring a splash of colour to the chamber. No, no, no get, get, get lost. I, I want mean, the opposite of that. Yeah, it's, um, we've tried that. It's yeah. a complete disaster. Um, anyone who's like a character, basically, yeah, I would just remove anyone who's got like a social media presence, anyone who's been an I'm a Celebrity, anyone who's done Desert Island Discs, None of that. Anybody who wears a crazy wig I mean, or sure a wild tie. Anything, like cut pattern socks, anything. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really, f- I wasn't really a fan of end of season Frank Field yeah. when he went all Brexity. You know, that I wouldn't, would have gone without, you know, the, the series should have ended earlier. But over, overall, like the guy was like a monk and you yeah. could kind of trust him. And he was kind of a bit boring. But I, I think this is, when we talk about widening the roots into politics, I think... This is one of the important things, is that sort of underappreciated character of just someone who's quite normal and boring. And I think, you know, we've discussed this previously on the show, that there's just such a strange quality to so many of our current MPs. You know, had you worked with Michael Gove 20 years ago, you would still be talking about the weirdest person I ever worked with. Yeah. You know, Ian Duncan Smith, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, all these kind of people. You just be like, God, you're not going to believe this person I used to work with. When we start talking about, you know, whenever they write these strange pieces, you know, Jess Phillips, this sort of maverick character in politics, like there is a woman like Jess Phillips in every single office in the country yeah. just getting on with her job. She's completely we all normal. dozens of Jess Phillips. Yeah. But I think that is significant. I think, you know, and having sort of Tracy on the show and, you know, Rory Stewart. And when you look at these people who, even if people don't like them politically, mm. They basically think they're coming from the right place and they would give them a hearing. You know, a lot of people on the left go, Look, I'm not a conservative, but Rory Stewart seems decent. You know, Tom Tuganat seems, you know, decent at the moment. And I think there's something sort of that all of them share in common is that they've all had this kind of broader life experience and you feel like they've had to deal with people who aren't like them. And they've had to, you know, have normal experiences that an ordinary person would recognize. And I think. Although it sounds like quite a broad answer, I think if they could open up more of those routes into politics, so it wasn't just, are you a career politician or have you sort of cultivated a large personality and then stepped sideways into politics? You know, neither of them are particularly helpful to giving us politicians that actually work, I don't think. Towards a boring revolution. Oh, bring it on. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. The films, TV shows, music, books, whatever else that have transported them away from the horrendous world of politics. Unfortunately, Tracy's had to leave. We would have loved to have heard what she's got to say. But, Marie, what's your escape route from politics? Um, so I have recently started watching Parts Unknown, um, the Anthony Bourdain show where he just goes around the world eating. And it is actually tremendous. It's really, really good fun. And there are about like 12 seasons on Netflix, which I would recommend. Um, and I've been reading actually something quite highbrow. I'm quite um, impressed with myself. Um, so Stefan Zweig wrote uh, this book on Casanova, kind of examining, I suppose, Casanova's memoirs in life. And it is such a tremendous piece of writing. It's so like every that like, I've wanted to take pictures and post or like every sentence, every paragraph. It's an absolute delight. Cannot recommend it enough. That sounds exceedingly highbrow. We're not. <laughs> that's not allowed on this podcast at all. Justin, bring the tone down. What's yours? 
Well, lucky, lucky you got me in then, Andrew, because uh, for a couple of essays I've been writing for uh, Record Collector, I've been immersing myself for the past week in vintage mid-period Iron Maiden. So, <laughs> <laughs> only the good stuff. The, only the good stuff, the very best. So uh, Seventh Son of the Seventh Son and Somewhere in, Somewhere in Time is the one that you'd like because the cover looks like Blade Runner. The with, one that I'd like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. With uh, Eddie as a sort of radioactive Blade Runner zombie in a sort of trench coat and no. a glowing cod piece okay uh, i've been writing two very long pieces on them they 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 came two years apart they sort of form an interesting companion piece in the middle of their career summer in time is one that kind of breaks the hot streak of their imperial phase 88 uh seventh son of a seventh son is the one that's sort of really come back to form but it's kind of the end of the road for that that era of them and um yeah it was really nice just to a long just immerse myself in the wonderful psychedelic metal world of iron maiden and think about it well listeners if that uh, piqued your interest hold on for uh, next Saturday's Culture Bunker when we'll be talking to friend of the podcast Michael Han about his astonishing book about the new wave of British heavy metal and you, you should see uh, Justin is now doing the, the the horn fingers the sign of Satan in the very studio um, mine mine is much tamer it is of course the, the best time in music ever because uh, there's a new Half Man Half Biscuit album as there is every four years uh, The Volta Roll Years it's called it's a hard relate from me there um, as ever Britain the, the, the poets of Britain the people who understand real Britain more than any politician any dramatist tracks on the new album include Tess of the Dormobiles and uh, I'm Getting Buried in the Morning and a fantastic tune entitled Token Covid Song about the the kind of musician who exploited the pandemic for likes and shares you know, the boiled down hatred of that will keep you going through a cold spring. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thank you, Marie LeCant. Thanks. I thank you, Justin Quirk. Thanks for having me. And by the miracle of time travel, thank you, Tracy Braben. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget a new episode of The Culture Bunker every Saturday. Remember, if you'd like this podcast, do share it with your friends. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon early episodes, merchandise and all manner of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. If you back us, you get a shout at the end of the podcast and here are some now. Hello and many thanks from me to Ryan Leahy and Matt Pincus. Best wishes from me to Mark Slater and Debbie Honor. And it's a big thanks from me to Richard Pipe and Tim Easton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bunker is presented by Andrew Harrison. With audio production from me, Robin Lever. Bunker is produced by Yelena Sofronovic and Jacob Archbold. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Our theme tune is by Kelly Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production.